you know, I was attracted to development because of the fees you can earn. You know, as a developer, you could charge 5% of a fee. So I kept saying to myself, if I could build a $10 million project, that's a pretty substantial fee. What really changed my life was a book that I read one day on syndication. And on that first page in the introduction, it said, anybody can syndicate. It gave me the belief system that, hey, I could figure this out. And when I built my first project, you know, it was a $17 million assisted living facility. It's really just understanding and learning from the top down, I would say, right? You don't necessarily have to learn real estate in that linear fashion. You could just crack into it something higher level and surround yourself with people that know a little bit more than yourself and trust that you could move it forward because of your belief system and you know be successful. This is the We Love Real Estate Podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 265 of the We Love Real Estate Podcast with Sean Pan. On today's show, we have Ken Van Lu. Ken started his career as a builder and a project manager before transitioning into becoming a full-time investor. In this episode, Ken will talk about the prerequisites of development, how to calculate costs, and how to finance a development deal. He'll also share how construction loans work and the typical terms for it. So if you want to learn more about real estate development, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and you need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show and I'll see you next week. All right, Ken, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let's know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Hey, Ken Van Lu. Some know me as the king of skyscrapers, just some know me as a guy that puts on their pants just like you, one leg at a time. But from the metropolitan area in New York, married for 34 years with the same wife and you know, a, a master at real estate after 30 years. You know, it only took 30 years to have overnight success. And we've been fortunate now to be able to pay it forward and really, you know, let the listeners know that it's not rocket science and you should get into real estate if you're trying to create, you know, a second stream of revenue or a financial future with residual income. And that's what we've been doing a little bit. So we're coming off of writing the modern wealth building formula in 2019, which has led to, you know, developments nationally. And, you know, now we're just paying it forward and helping people, you know, to be successful in real estate. And that's what we're here today to help the listeners see you know, future. Yeah. Happy to have you on. So can you briefly tell us a little bit about what types of real estate are you most focused on at the moment? Yeah. You know, with the whole pandemic, things change a little bit. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I didn't have as many rentals as a lot of people always strive to have, you know, because in tough times, this would have been a little bit more difficult. You know, I've always had a strategy towards development. I do have assets that pay residual income, but it you know, I'm not one of those guys that's holding 10,000 units that's not collecting rent, you know. So during that time, I was fortunate because I was in in a lot of development of multifamily and multi-use, self-storage, flex office, hotels, self-storage, you know, and it, and it enabled us to diversify. You know, I was able to sign a, a lease on one of my projects with the CVS Pharmacy. So what I say is, you know, when New York kind of took a little hiatus, you know, with all the chaos. I started building skyscrapers horizontally and we're now doing about 75 acres nationwide. Wow. How do you get into development? Great question. I started with being a builder and having a job as a superintendent and learning how to build and then a project manager. And, you know, I was attracted to development because of the fees you can earn. You know, as a developer, you could charge 5% of a fee. So I kept saying to myself, if I could build a $10 million project, that's a pretty substantial fee. 
you know, and it's really just a matter of believing, you know, and what really changed my life was a book that I read one day on syndication. And on that first page in the introduction, it said anybody can syndicate. They could be a builder, an accountant, a clerk, a lawyer, a builder, etc. I'm repeating myself. But the point is, is that it gave me the belief system that, hey, I could figure this out. And when I built my first project, which, you know, most people say it's not true, you know, it was a $17 million assisted living facility out of the box. And, you know, that's how we got started. So, you know, it's really just understanding and learning from the top down, I would say, right? Real estate development is kind of the zenith, if I would say, the highest point of real estate. You, you may start with a wholesale, then do a fix and flip commercial. You don't necessarily have to learn you know, real estate in that linear fashion, you could just crack into it, you know, at something higher level and surround yourself with people that know a little bit more than yourself and trust that you could move it forward because of your belief system and, you know, and be successful. So do you also do residential real estate as well, or do you focus mostly on the commercial side? We do. You know, I'm trying to put over 200 units in the pipeline right now. However, you know, we did have a run where one year we did over 137 wholesale fix and flips in one year by scraping auction sites. You know, the dynamic of that environment's changed a little bit. You know, the auctions, as we all know, weren't being attended for a long time. They're just starting to get back in play. So a lot of the strategies around the residential have changed and there's been a little bit of a frenzy. So, you know, do I have some people in my group that are still in it? Yes, but I'm not focused that on a day-to-day. I'm more trying to create, you know, one site we have is 45 acres, another site is 28 acres. And as part of those sites, we have little, literally like 10 different deals within one. You know, we may have 100 townhomes and 100 flats, retail, drive-throughs, flex office, self-storage, medical office, hotels. So we have a little bit of everything to play with. And, you know, really the market's driving everything and it determines, you know, where, where I focus on. Yeah, because most people that come on my show usually focus on one thing, like either they're in residential or they're in hospitality or they're doing syndications and commercial. So how do you decide which one you want to go with? Yeah, well, I guess you could say when it comes down to it, building something, if someone wants me to build to suit, you know, I just look at it as another project. You know, as far as the way I've always looked at investments, you know, I look at investment as a project criteria. So if someone's going to sign a lease on a flex office and it meets that criteria and allows you to get a certain IRR that you could syndicate it, you know, I may get involved in that. You know, I'm not saying I'll build it or self-storage. Sometimes they want you to build it, stabilize it. You know, if someone's going to pay me $2 million to deliver a pad, I would be attracted to that. But as I stand today on these multi-use, you know, I focus on, hey, you know, I know I could do the residential. If I were to develop 100 townhomes, that's something I could do. I also know that you know, I could build a medical office building. So, you know, I guess you really, if it was concentration, I guess it would be first residential, you know, then maybe self-storage, but I'm not going to push myself away from anything and do whatever it takes to just kind of make the deal go through, you know? So when I look at things, you know, you could buy something when it's platted, you could buy something when the infrastructure's in and it's shovel ready, you know, where do you want to come in? I could build a suit for you. So, you know, there's all different ways to exit strategy when you're in this type of game. And what are you doing in terms of location? Are you sticking towards like where you're at or do you look nationwide for opportunities? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm kind of following, you know, what you could read about. There's maybe eight to 10 cities. You know, there's a few in Texas. There's some in North Carolina, the Triangle. I do stay in my backyard in New Jersey. But right now we're in Florida, Texas, North Carolina and New Jersey looking at some stuff in Connecticut, but slowly branching out. So let's say someone is trying to get into development in the future and you know, you're based in New York. So let's say someone's based in California. 
How do you go about setting up a crew, a development team to develop new construction over in Texas or North Carolina and Georgia? So one of the things that I teach, you know, no matter wherever you go, you have to develop your dream team is what I call. And those are the experts for that specific area, you know, and, and in development, you have several players in North Carolina, I have planners, our environmental guys, traffic, civil engineers, soil experts, goes on and on and on. Attorneys that are doing land use, attorneys that are figuring out the condo associations. And you really just have to build a dream team and you're kind of the orchestrator getting that band to sing off the same song sheet. And, you know, obviously you have to reduce the risk in any development and most of your risk is in the building side of it. And that's where you really have to know what you're doing in the sense or have an expert that knows construction because there's a couple different ways to build. You know, you don't necessarily want to put all your eggs in one basket and give the entire project to a general contractor. I've always taken the approach that if I'm not going to build it myself, have an open book policy with, you know, be a construction management where you could see what the costs are. You could be involved in the buyouts. So you really have to have your control mechanisms in place. You know, and, and a lot of those things I teach because besides finding and funding projects, when you're developing, the facilitation of that process is key. You know, there's a lot of moving parts. One of the courses that I created over the years is real estate development made simple. It has a, literally a 12-foot linear matrix of each of the steps for the components that are taking place throughout the development process. And you know, I'm not saying it's complicated, but there's a lot of moving parts and it's risk versus reward. You know, there's a little more risk in development, but there's much more reward and you get to have the, you know the best of both worlds. It involves acquisitions, funding, facilitation, and being a developer and, and enjoying that process. Yeah. I also found that with new development, I think it's a little bit easier to calculate your costs. Whereas for like a, let's say a residential rehab, fix and flip, you have an estimation that it's going to cost you 30000 50000 to renovate a property. But then when you really get into it, there are some things hidden behind the walls that you didn't account for. Whereas for new development, you already know you're going to scrape the land and build fresh. So the numbers will be easier to calculate. Yeah, there's no question that what we found, and that's kind of falls under the line of contingency, right? So when you're doing a new development, I use 5% contingency. When I'm doing a renovation, I use 15% because it's, it's exactly that, you know? There's always something lurking behind the walls or, you know, some, I call them unanticipated situations or circumstances arise. And, you know, never have I done a fix and flip where my budget was, was, you know, I was below budget, you know, you know, and, and it's primarily because you don't have as much margin for error because you're working with smaller numbers, you know, and obviously when you're working with bigger numbers, you want to make sure that you don't hiccup and lose a hundred grand. So, you know, you have this double-edged sword all the time, you know, when you're trying to figure it out. Right. What would you say is like a prerequisite for someone who wants to get into development? Yeah. You know, I tell you, um, prerequisite would, you know, number one, be able to see the vision and, Literally create a vision board of what you want to develop it and look at it every single day. And the prerequisite, and if you read my book, I talk a little bit about, you know, where do you fit in the lineup? So if you were to look at a baseball lineup, you know, are you a leadoff guy that's out there, you know, real proactive? Are you more of a, an end of a lineup guy that's kind of waiting until things get set up and then you're going to invest your money? Are you a cleanup guy with a lot of money? So you want to kind of assess where you're at. And then you want to look at, you know, like you said, you know, a lot of people don't look at real estate, you know, so what's your flavor for real estate? I kind of say it's almost like an ice cream store. You got to go in and try a few things, narrow it down to a few and, you know, maybe residential is your ballywick, maybe self-storage, you know, and kind of determine where you want to go because you can easily take a shotgun approach and just blast away 
Or you could take more of a sniper approach where you're dialing in on that target and really understanding. Because I believe the more clarity you have on what you want, the more leverage you're going to have to achieve that result. You know, and, and that's really it. And then I, I think the last thing that I would say is, you know, have some mentorship because a lot of people devalue themselves. They don't realize what their time is worth. And time is your most expensive commodity. So if it's going to take you 10 hours to figure out something when you could you know, speak to someone like Ken Van Loo and learn it in an hour, that's nine hours that people don't go, you know what, my time's worth a hundred bucks an hour. You know, I don't want to spend $900 if I can learn it in one hour. You know, and people don't realize that. You know, it's almost like you see people driving a few miles to save 10 cents on gas, <laughs> you know, and then sit in line for an hour. They don't realize that, hey, you know, in that one hour, you could have created something. Right. And with development, it's such a long process, usually like one or two years to even get the plans pushed through. And like you said, like if you're doing it wrong in the get-go, then you just wasted all that time. You have to go back and redraw and that all that extra like work costs more money. Exactly. Yeah, I, I experienced that in uh, one of my projects where, you know, we designed for a certain drainage regulation. And in March in New Jersey, they changed the stormwater regs. The, the one thing uh, an architect and uh, an engineer hate is an eraser, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, we had to do a lot of erasing and, and some redesign. But, you know, yes, there's, you know, those types of struggles. And, you know, I'm on my fifth planning board meeting in New Jersey, which you want to talk about development. Every state is different. You know, New Jersey tortures you to get an approval. North Carolina, like, hey, come on in. Like, let's go out Friday night and have some pretzels and beer, you know, and, and talk about how we could develop downtown. You know, it's a whole different atmosphere. And, you know, New Jersey's frustrating and you have to have a lot of patience and kind of let it evolve and just be with it sometimes, you know, and it's, uh, it's nerve wracking, you know, and you, know, you got to carry it. So, you know, there's pros and cons, but the good news is in development, you know, and the beauty of it on my first project is I was able to start paying myself a development fee, which is like $27,000 a month coming out of the box, you know, so a lot of times people can't pay themselves when they're doing you know, other types of real estate, you get your acquisition fees, et cetera. But in real estate development, there's almost nine ways to pay yourself fees. You know, that's why I was, you know, was attracted to it. Nice. And can we talk about how you finance a development deal? Sure. Several different ways, but essentially the way I create a stack is, you know, a lot of times I'll look for preferred equity up front, someone who's a little riskier to kind of get some seed money to, you know, move the ball forward. And then there's usually an equity requirement that at the time of the first finance, like as I talk about these multi-use, sometimes we don't know exactly how we're going to finance. Ideally, we try to get one of those components ready to go. So when we close on the property, we have a construction loan to close and kind of get started right away and, and not have to carry that long. And I think I just distracted myself from the question. But, you know, so as far as financing, you know, so at that point, for example, I'll just bring you into a perfect example. We're in a situation where I'm getting ready to finance our CVS. So we want to take the risk and start development as soon as we get our approval at the end of the month. Now, normally there's an appeal process. So during that appeal process, I can take the risk because if it gets appeal and I, and I, you know, start my development, you know, I'll take the risk. But if there's an appeal process, certain institutional banks, say, for example, may not want to take that risk. So I'm going to go to a bank that's a little more lenient and isn't so institutionalized. It's more of a private local bank, which I'm going to take that approach. There are other times where I've asked one of my investors, hey, do you want to finance the construction side? Depending on the type of construction, if you were to bring me into the high rise world, you know, we used to do large institutional financing, you know, with some of the bigger players where we would bring equity in from overseas and work it that way. I've done financing 
on deals where I've actually sold municipal bonds, right? So there's many different ways to finance real estate development and people that are getting started, you know, which, you know, when I got started, didn't realize that, you know, the New Jersey EDA was going to lend me $17 million to build an assisted living. So there's also the Housing Finance and Mortgage Authority in New Jersey, and these entities exist in all different states. You've obviously heard of HUD. You know, that's a federal agency at this, at that level. And, you know, HUD, you know, is good and bad. You know, yes, they have 40, you know, year amortization, but it also sometimes takes years of Sundays before you get approved. You know, so you have to balance out, you know, do you want to get the project in the pipeline in this century or, you know, next century, you know, but this gives you a little taste on, on the different vehicles, you know, to finance. How do you go about finding these different like organizations that will fund you? I talk a little bit about them in my book. You know, I, I didn't know that there was a whole municipal bond world out there, you know, where cities, you know, are generating money through municipal bonds, which then could be used for financing. There's tax credit scenarios. You know, there's all kinds of things out there. You know, I mean, in today's world, you can find almost anything on Google, you know, and then it's a matter of picking up the phone and having a conversation. I think people, you know, don't realize that communication is 55% effective when you have some sort of body language. Now, this Zoom conversation, you may not be getting all 55% of that, but words are only about 7% communication. You know, when you add the tonality and you get about another 38%, but the body language is really 55%. And in development, when you're working with a smaller margin from error and you have a lot of people involved, it's really important that on a weekly basis, you're face-to-face with people, making sure everybody's singing to the same song sheet and marching, you know, into the same location, direction. Yeah. So I work as a hard money lender as my full-time job. And sometimes people ask us for, you know, funding for their new development projects. Obviously, these are a much smaller scale than what you're doing. They're probably doing like single family, you know, new development. And, you know, as a lender, we think, okay, well, new development is inherently more risky because you're knocking the property down to the ground. So in the worst case scenario, we could be left with just a bare piece of land. Yes. And therefore we lend less. What are typical terms for, you know, again, lending on these projects? Like, is there different phases for like land, construction, et cetera? Yeah. So one of the tricks to what I've done is that, you know, and I, I'm not in a position where I could just write $5 million checks and buy property. Someone called me and said, hey, Ken, you got to buy this property $3.1 million. You could sell it for, you know, $6 million, DR Horton. I'm like, that's cool. But right now I don't have an extra disposable $3.1 million. That sounds great. But I'm more of a guy that I, you know, I buy properties literally on terms, contingent upon approval. You know, back in the day, I've got a 15 acre property for 10 grand. You know, the 45 acre, I put down 50, but that 50 is refundable. The closing is contingent upon the approvals. I have a certain amount of time to get those approvals. And yes, I do have to spend money and advance the standards and get the engineering approved and the environmental and the traffic and all that kind of stuff. But what does that do? It adds value and I could pay myself during that time. You know, and that's how I typically set it up. And then once the engineering is getting approved and, you know, you're a year down the road, you've had some deals in the pipeline. That's when you close on the property, get your construction loan and start clearing. You know, so I try to time it perfectly. Does it always work like that? No. You know, on Chester, I wanted to be in the ground six months ago. COVID put a lot of havoc on the approval process. Meetings were getting canceled. You know, we were doing stuff on Zoom. It was taking twice as long. But, you know, it's really just, you know, that constant moving the ball forward, empowering the team, building those dream teams I was talking about, and just bold leadership, you know? 
So just to clarify, for most of your deals, you try to structure it so that you only close on it after the plans are approved by the city. That way you don't have to have two years of holding costs on a property where you're not doing anything with it. Yeah. And the money you're putting in is now contributed as equity. So guys like yourself that are lending are called, okay, that guy's putting some of his money in. And by the time he gets to the point that I'll consider lending him money, he's going to have a couple hundred grand of his own money in. So in North Carolina, you know, I'm not closing on a, you know, three and a half million dollar property, but I'll have a half a million dollars of my own money, be in it for four, but hey, it'll be worth seven, right? And then I'll develop it and turn it into 50. And that's how basically it works. Can you talk about how construction loans work and what are typical terms for those? Sure. Yeah. I mean, typically a construction loan in many cases is a temporary component, a little bit higher interest, which you draw down on as you have work in place. So for example, if you have a $5 million loan and you're building a building, it's not like you just have $5 million in the bank. When you go and you build the foundation, let's say that's worth $500,000, they'll then give you that money to pay for the work you just did. In a lot of cases, sometimes you can make Special arrangements, a lot of times in New York when we were pouring reinforced concrete towers, you know, the cash flow you need for those types of payrolls, you know, on $10 million contracts, we were actually requisitioning and drawing down on a, on a biweekly basis in order to keep that cash flow coming in. But a lot of times construction is set up in a drawdown. You have an architect. They come to the site on a monthly basis. The requisition is at the last week of the month. And it's just a process that you set up. An expert comes in. He walks the job site. He agrees with the work that's in place, which you're submitting a requisition. And typically, if you could set that process up, that will go through the course of construction. And then once you get you know, to a point of construction where you start your sales, you move into your permanent finance and they take out your construction loan at a much lower interest rate. But a lot of times, you know, construction is an expedited finance at a higher interest rate. You know, it's not quite a hard money. You know, maybe hard money's at 12, 14, who the heck knows where it could be. You know, your construction somewhere in the vicinity of like six and eight. Okay. So similar to what we do here, we call them draws. I think they're the exact same thing as you mentioned, where it's like a reimbursement process where they go in, you guys do the work first, you guys show your invoices and receipts, and then we reimburse you based on what you've spent so far. Now, when you're buying the properties, are you also using the construction loan to buy them? Or is there a different type of loan to purchase the property? It will vary in some cases. Ideally, I love to close with the equity that I paid in and an infusion of equity at that point to close on the property, sometimes depending on the value. Say, for example, in this $3.5 million acquisition, the site work on that project is probably going to be 7 to $10 million. So ideally, I'd love to clear all 45 acres. So instead of me looking at as a $3.5 million acquisition, I look at it as like a 10 or $11 million project, knowing that I have to bring in about $3 million to close. But like I said, it's all about carry, right? Because if you're carrying $3 million, you know, that's a couple bucks every month. That if you could start breaking ground and just incorporate it all into the draw, it just makes it a little less, you know, friction. And are these lenders just like local banks to an area or how are you finding these people to finance your projects? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to establish, like I opened a local bank account in Lewisburg, you know, whether or not they're going to absorb some of the risk. You know, I envision them probably getting involved in certain portions of it, but I try to establish some relationship with local banks and see what they can do. And then... You know, we're looking at some of the bigger institutions, you know, to these things. But it's kind of um, who has the best terms when it's time for the money, you know. So you're out there shopping a little bit. Got it. So like, it's a good exercise probably just to call a lot of local banks in your area and just kind of see what they have to offer. Yeah. You know, in a lot of cases, you know, they're going to want to create some type of credit line and have you establish it. So if I was, 
you know, looking at it, like what could a local bank do for me in Lewisburg? If I was going to start doing the townhomes, they would probably, you know, maybe cycle us with the three to $5 million loan. We could build 10 homes, sell them, build the next day type of thing. You know, and we're kind of feeling that out right now. We've just started some relationships and some of our lenders in New Jersey, you know, aren't going to come to North Carolina. So we're actually feeling it out and seeing how we're going to approach it down there. Yeah. So I'm doing something very similar. We have a good relationship with the bank over in Georgia where they're giving us these nice 20 year loan terms on just residential properties, but they won't lend outside of their local market. So now that we're here in Texas and Dallas, we have to find our own new relationships. And I'm getting a lot of phone calls between banks asking them, Hey, do you guys do commercial loans for residential properties? And so yeah, exactly. it's like a long list. Yeah. So I guess I was also wondering if you're brand new, you know, I think there are a lot of pitfalls and a lot of risks that you need to be aware of. But uh, I guess from your experience, what have you seen to be some of the most obvious ones that new people don't really see? You know, it's funny because um, I'll see if I could recall some of the ones off the top of my head, but you want to make it a point and maybe you can get it out to your listeners. There was a report that I wrote once upon a time called the 11 secrets and the 60 pitfalls of real estate investing. And, you know, I think one, you know, just taking a shotgun approach could be risky, you know, in the sense that I've always trying to take more of a sniper approach, you know, dial in, you know, learn, you know, what you're going to do, you know, partnerships, getting in bed with the wrong person, you know, knowing what you don't know. There's many that you can get involved in, you know, and when you start to break it down, it really comes down to time, right? You know, if you want to spend a year trying to find deals, trying to figure out yourself versus getting somebody to teach you how to find a deal, you know, you should just determine, do you want to learn it quickly? And, you know, how do you fund it? What are your options to fund it? And how are you going to facilitate it? You know, so, you know, I think really it's, it's a lot of what I call is deep work. You know, there's a lot of things going on on a shallow level where, you know, a lot of social media, a lot of deal flow and a lot of wasted time not really knowing what you're looking for. Like you could look at a hundred deals, but if someone doesn't know what you're looking for, you're just going to keep looking at deals. Like I've always believed in establishing what the criteria is. So if you're going to have somebody go out and look for deals for you, they're looking for what you're looking for. You know, that's going to meet your criteria and then you could syndicate it or you could purchase it. You know, you just don't want to, you know, just go out there just running loose. You know, you want to kind of see you know, where you're at today, where you want to be, figure out how to approach that gap in the most effective way, right? You know, I always try to tell people there's a difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is, you know, you're running as fast as you can and you're really efficient in what you do, but you're not moving forward as fast as you'd like because you're doing the right thing, but effectiveness is knowing what to do. You know, and sometimes people don't know what they want until you show them. And sometimes, you know, it just takes a little leadership to say, hey, instead of going on that track, you know, turn a little bit this way and, you know, and, and that'll make the difference. Those little micro distinctions, you know. We kind of call them like a shiny object syndrome, right? Where you're trying one thing and you hear on a podcast or you watch a video of this other strategy. And suddenly you think, oh my God, that one sounds so much better. So you go on that one and you keep zigzagging to different things. And then you find out two years later, you didn't do anything because you kept trying to do different strategy without actually seeing one thing all the way through. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I, I've personally been guilty of this too. You know, I spent a good amount of time trying different avenues before settling in on my preferred strategy, but I think you just have to commit to one thing, get good and then move on. Yeah, I definitely struggled with that also, you know, just to stay in real estate. You know, I grew up 12 years old. I started doing magic. I've been a magician since I was a kid, you know, he's playing around. That's led to meeting all different kinds of people. One time I was trying to buy Stewart's root beer. Another time I was trying to go into the car simonizing business. And I was like, you know, enough shiny pennies. Let's stay in real estate. If you want to teach people, teach them about real estate and 
Show them how what you learn about real estate applies to business. Let them go into the other type of business and get them to be successful through, you know, things that apply across the board. You know, you got to have systems in place. You got to, whether you're finding real estate or finding a business, you have to do the same techniques. Whether you're funding real estate or funding a business, you have to do the same techniques and you have to facilitate the process no matter what you do in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since you've been working in this field for such a long time now, I'm sure you have lots of experiences and, you know, not every deal goes the way you expect them to go. What would you say is one of your biggest challenges with real estate? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge in real estate is, you know, and I've been fortunate, you know, when construction costs run away, I was on a project in New York City where a building started leaning that we were doing a deep foundation that ended up costing me two million bucks that I was fortunately able to go and, and you know, do an insurance claim. But that could have been terrible havoc on what we were creating, you know. You know, other things, the, the, the approval process never goes as planned. Like on Chester, I thought I was going to get the approval for 700,000. I'm now into it for like 1.3, you know, and I didn't think I needed that 500,000. So now I'm figuring out how to explain that and, you know, where were the unanticipated conditions. And, you know, those are the real struggles. You know, fortunately, when you get into the development, you got to make sure there's enough margin for error because $500,000 is a lot of money. You know, unfortunately, we have a, a CVS lease and we have some other property. So, you know, you just have to be careful in that sense. If you're going to grab hold of a 1,200-pound gorilla, you know, make sure you have somebody watching your back, you know? Right. So I guess in this case, did you raise funds for that particular deal? And is that who you have to kind of explain these situations to? Yeah, great question. So on that deal, I bought a 28-acre property and then signed a CVS lease for a pad. And part of that property has a restoration of a 100-year-old restaurant, a CVS pharmacy, affordable housing, medical office. And then what I did is I bought the whole property and I syndicated out the CVS. So I do have to answer to people because basically the approval process I've been going through is essentially to get the CVS to break ground. And then the rest of the project requires a septic system, uh, you know, a sanitary treatment plant. My CVS, I'm going to open up with a residential like septic system and a well that I have on site. But to do the larger development, I have to create, you know, a sanitary treatment plant on site, get a water across a highway. And it's a whole second phase. So, you know, there's all different kinds of strategies. And these are the things that kind of pop up where I thought like, oh, wow, I'll sell the restaurant site, the affordable housing, I'll collect some money, things will go as planned. And it hasn't been such a, a smooth road, you know? That's so interesting. I didn't know that commercial buildings could operate on a septic and well system, but I guess it's what you have to do if you're up in the mountains or something like that. Yeah, believe it or not. And fortunately, a CVS doesn't have a lot of sanitary waste, like, you know, and provide, it has to meet a certain criteria. So residential sanitary septic systems can only take a certain gallon per minute. And fortunately, the CVS allows us to do that. Like the restaurant, which used to run off of a, a septic system now, you know, based on the capacity and the change of environmental standards, we have to tie that in to the treatment plan on site, you know, and that's a whole process where we go through the Department of Environmental Protection. We have to do a you know, a sanitary design, do test pits, you know, drainage pits. It's it's literally a septic system, but on a much larger scale. You're treating it, creating clear water, and then draining it off in the back, you know, type of thing. So just curious, how does the like, planning go from like 700 or so to 1.3 million? How did that delta come about? Yeah, so we, we had probably about a $100,000 problem on that drainage situation that I had. There was over $100,000 in escrow accounts that we didn't think we were going to have due to this whole COVID thing, you know, where the town and the officials kind of just spend your money to do the approval process. Partially my mistake, you know, I came across a foreclosure deal that 
just was so attractive. Maybe I didn't look at the cost close enough, right? So, you know, probably a hundred in, um, in engineering, another hundred in what I just mentioned. We have to put a traffic light in now, which is going to cost like $200,000, which was unexpected. Change some transportation things. Retaining walls have come into play. You know, so little things that were just unanticipated because you know, the grading on site, which is relatively steep, has to meet like a minimum grade requirement. You know, you can't have like wheelchairs, like, you know, pulling wheelies going down the road and stuff, you know. So the cut and fill was a lot more. We have some fill to lose. And these are things you can't see from a, a single plan view. You start to realize that thing when you get into the engineering design and looking at it three-dimensionally. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. And how are you finding your deals at the moment? You know, over the years, it's just become word of mouth. And, and I've created, uh, I call it a, the Cosa Nostra of uh, real estate. You know, it's like the mafia. <laughs> I created the global real estate investment enterprise. You know, we have invitation only to people that join, you know, the enterprise. And through word of mouth, just, you know, through my connections, you know, I pretty much get deals that way. I mean, this year we're going to start looking at more multifamily, but I don't really want to get into everybody else looking for multifamily and all those deals. We're going to just try to find stuff under the radar. But it's essentially, you know, through just our national network and relationships and people bringing stuff to us that they can't handle and things like that. Yeah. So it's like in the beginning, it's very hard because you don't have those relationships built. But after they see you as a performer, someone that can close and you do what you say you're going to do, then they think you view as like a trusted source and they just keep sending you more and more deals. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Well, Ken, it's been an honor having you on our show today. Do you have any last words for our listeners before we wrap up? No, I just, you know, if anybody wants to find out any more, I'm easy to get in touch with. You can go to my website, check it out. You know, I, I offer my book for free and I'm just a guy that started with nothing that, uh, you know, as they say, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. You know, I worked from five in the morning till midnight every day for 25 years. So after having 125,000 hours in engineering, real estate and construction, you know, I, I have a chance to pay it forward and that's where I'm at in life. So here to help. Awesome. And Ken, what is that website again? It's KenVanLu.com and you can click on the Discover How button. That'll bring you to an appointment. You could talk to me direct or you can go to the 11millionairesecrets.com, get some free information and check out my free book under the program section and just go out and make some money. Awesome. Well, Ken, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.